Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up... I don't think there's a year goes by without some environmental catastrophe where a dam wall breaks or Australian scientist says Japan's proposed nuclear wastewater ocean dump is totally safe. Also... Improving the conservation sustainable use of the marine biodiversity in the region is critically important. The Pacific celebrates agreement on a high seas treaty as a win for ocean protection. And later on... No matter what culture you are, it doesn't matter to come and embrace other people's culture. You know, we're all one. Polyfest 2023, celebrating Pacific language, arts and culture. Before we get into all that, a recap on one of our biggest news stories. Fiji's former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and suspended police chief Sitiveni Ngiliho were granted bail on Friday. Both men have pleaded not guilty to one count each of abuse of office. They're accused of using their positions in 2019 to shut down a police investigation into mismanagement at the University of the South Pacific. According to local media reports, Magistrate Saini Puamau set bail at 10,000 Fijian dollars. Mr. Bainimarama and Mr. Ngilio have also been ordered not to leave the country and to reside at a permanent address. Magistrate Puamau also ordered them not to interfere with witnesses. They are next expected in court on the 11th of May. An Australian scientist who deals with radiation on a daily basis believes there's no reason for Pacific nations to be concerned about the upcoming release of treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean by Japan. Professor of Chemistry at Sydney University, Brendan Kennedy, says the release from the damaged Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant is the largest ever discharge of treated nuclear wastewater at over 1 million tonnes. He told Lydia Lewis, people do not understand the science. The volume is the challenge that the Japanese are dealing with. Just, you know, what the, the famous unit of a couple of hundred Olympic swimming pools of waste. So they've got to somehow or another store that safely. And the longer you store something, the greater the risk that an accident's going to happen. You know, we, we look at mines and all the rest of it where they store their waste and their mine tailings for long periods of time. And I don't think there's a year goes by without some environmental catastrophe where a dam wall breaks or something else and then and the mine spills. Now, well, the Japanese have the same problem, that they've got a vast volume of liquid that's in tanks that is not designed to last forever. They're always seen as temporary structures, so they either have to think about how you would build a huge holding dam to store all this water that you can guarantee, in inverted commas, that it would never exchange with the groundwater around that area, or you treat it and release it. And I think you're much better off to release it under your controlled circumstances, so you're in control, rather than have an accidental released due to a tank failing or a dam wall failing or something else. Why not treat it and then store it in a dam or treat it and then store it, you know, why not do that? So they're using a filtration method to take out all the material that they can remove from it. So what they're going to be left behind with is one particular isotope of hydrogen, tritium. 
and there is no technology that exists to remove the tritium from the volume of water they've got. So before they release it, they will remove all the radiation and all the other nasties in the water to the best of their ability, which, you know, this technology that they're looking at is used commercially to produce drinking water in other countries. So the water will be relatively benign except for these very small levels of tritium. And there's no technology to remove tritium from the volume of water they have. So they can't get rid of it. It's a sort of short, short answer. So if they can't get rid of it, they could store it for roughly 100 years, half-life of about 12.3 years for tritium. Rule of thumb is 8 to 10 years. You store material for it to decay to a level that you think is no longer problematic. So you'd have to store the water for the next 100 years. And has this been done before on the scale following a disaster? I know that um, wastewater is released, but... Has it been done before on this scale? Not on this scale. So one thing to come back to is the total volume of tritium that's estimated to be held in the tanks is relatively small. There are other reactors around the world that are authorised to release more tritium than TEPCO want to release from the Fukushima site. Now we can you can go into the arguments about whether other regulators are too lenient or the world, but other countries, including countries in the region, have authorised their reactors to release more radiation or more tritium in particular than is held on the TEPCO side. That doesn't mean they're actually releasing it, but they've been authorised to release it. Okay. And the Pacific Islands Forum panel of experts, did you watch their briefing? No, but I've read their report. Okay, and what do you make of their report? The panel did a good job in highlighting that some of these unknowns that come through there. I think the panel occasionally was a little bit disingenuous. and How so? So they talk about the bioremediation. And bioremediation is something that is used quite common if you have heavy metal spills, for example. But tritium is the issue, and I cannot see how bioremediation would work. What is your message to people who read the headline, you know, radioactive wastewater to be released and this massive amount, sizes of, you know, Olympic swimming pools, and they immediately get scared. What is your message as an expert to those people who are genuinely concerned about the health of their ocean, where they live, where they fish, where they, you know, swim? Firstly, radiation is part of our everyday life. So as I sit here in Sydney, I'm being irradiated at the moment by all sorts of weird and wonderful um, things. My body is naturally radioactive. It has various isotopes in it that just come from the environment. And so very low levels of radiation are part of how we live, the exposure to these. What TEPCO are proposing to do is to release 
a minuscule amount measured in grams of tritium into the Pacific Ocean that already contains kilograms of tritium. And so the net increase in the radiation that the people of the Pacific, and I live on the Pacific coast, so me, the people of the Pacific are going to be subject to is essentially zero. So I think it, it's the scale of it. If you don't mind, I would like to stay in touch because obviously the story isn't going away anytime soon mm-hmm. or in either of our lifetimes. No, no, and that's one of the other things. And the other thing, Lydia, I, I, I keep saying because, you know, I'm a chemist. Yes, I deal with radiation on a daily basis, but I also deal with all sorts of other weird and wonderful parts of the periodic table that are actually much scarier than radiation in my mind. The amount of non-radioactive debris that was generated by the earthquake is horrific. And the amount of greenhouse gases that were emitted by the um, aftermath of the tsunami is horrific. And we lose sight of just how much damage this event did to the planet. And the Fukushima is a headline, and and I don't want to be misunderstood. It's a, it's a horrific problem, and it needs to be dealt with very very carefully. Um, but it's a very it's a small part of a very complex environmental catastrophe. And what are your reflections twelve years on? Um, well, I. I go to, not in, into that particular part, but I go up to Tokai, which is just oh, about 40-odd kilometres from Fukushima, uh, relatively regularly. And you, you know, 12 years ago, you could see the physical damage to the infrastructure as a consequence of the earthquake. Um, you know, we couldn't, where I go, you can't see the radiation. But, you know, the Physical damage is just terrific. And the other one, I think, in the Pacific that we think about, um, you know, is the Boxing Day tsunami. Just that huge environmental and physical damage. And they're still looking now at how the stir-up of the silt from that, the Boxing Day tsunami, has impacted the heavy metal content of marine life and with the consequences on heavy metal exposure to people. So, you know, as I say, I'm not trying to downplay the severity of what TEPCO are dealing with, you know, but I think it's one part of a very complex environmental problem that follows any of these huge natural disasters. But an independent U.S.-based scientist, Frank Dalnoki-Verez, who's on the Pacific Islands Forum panel of experts, says the concerns are valid and stands by the panel's report. He says progress has been made with fifth experts and Japan expected to meet again this month to hash out issues. More on this next week. After close to two decades of negotiations, an historic United Nations Ocean Treaty to protect marine biodiversity in international waters was agreed on this week in New York. The agreement, referred to as the High Seas Treaty, will allow marine protected areas, or MPAs, to be set up in international waters. It's been supported by Pacific leaders and environment-focused non-government organisations. Caleb Fotheringham has more. 
The treaty is in line with the 30 by 30 pledge made by countries at the UN Biodiversity Conference in December to protect a third of the sea and land by 2030. World Wildlife Fund New Zealand's Chief Executive Officer Kayla Kingdon-Bibb says the treaty is set to benefit Pacific nations. The ocean influences every aspect of life in the Pacific. It's central to culture and it sustains the well-being of Pacific nations. So what happens out in the deep sea is really significant and improving the conservation and sustainable use of the marine biodiversity in the region is critically important for intergenerational equity and sustainability going forward. Ms Kingdom Bibb says it will also mean commercial fishing will be better managed. The Pacific region's fisheries are a major source of income and food security for many Pacific island countries and territories. And the pathways set out in this agreement will help safeguard these species and their habitats and also assist in ensuring the sustainability of Pacific fisheries. Greenpeace campaigner Jessica Desmond says the treaty was the start of getting marine protected areas implemented on the high seas. We need to think of this as the first step. It's a great first step. It's a historic win that we finally have a way to create marine protected areas. And now we need to get on with the hard work of actually implementing those marine protections. Ocean governance expert Hugh Govan says MPAs are sometimes promoted as a cure-all for ocean problems, which was not the case. However, Mr Govan says if international mechanisms designed to protect the ocean were not working, MPAs in the high seas could be beneficial. In the high seas, if management is not being very effectively carried out, it may well be that marine protected areas are the best available tool and it might well help everybody if strict protection is, is enforced on large sections of the high seas. Mr Govan says he hopes the strongest authorities on establishing the MPAs will be Pacific Island states. At the moment, and in particular for tuna, it's the small island states that are carrying what we call the conservation burden of managing the world's tuna stocks. And the, the fishing that happens in the high seas is benefiting from this conservation without actually being part of the access fees arrangement. Ms Desmond says a network approach needs to be taken when establishing the MPAs, which includes taking into account migratory patterns. There's a risk where protections happen in areas that industry don't want to use. We've seen it happen where the fishing industry, for example, has said you can protect these areas because we actually don't want to fish them. That's not the approach we want to take. Lee Dei Kana Singer led the organisation Pacific Network on Globalisation at the negotiations in New York. She says the agreement means Pacific nations will first need to be consulted if activities are taking place in the high seas, bordering a country's exclusive economic zone. The proponents of the activities will need to ensure that whatever that happens in the areas beyond national jurisdiction does not impact the exclusive economic zones of Pacific seeds. Ms Dokana Singer says capacity building is required for developing countries so they could be part of monitoring MPAs. We have to remember, high seas MPAs are in remote areas, and they will need crucial monitoring and surveillance systems. And so these high-tech expensive satellite surveillance systems, if developing countries are to be part of this, then we will need capacity building. Pacific leaders have also praised the treaty. Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown, in a statement, welcomed the conclusion of the negotiations and called for the adoption of the agreement to be fast-tracked. He says when the treaty is in force, ocean states will be further empowered to protect the high seas. Australian parliamentarians have turned down a chance to close the government's offshore centres for detaining asylum seekers and refugees. 
The Labour government, supported by the Liberal Nationals opposition, easily defeated a bill called the Migration Amendment Evacuation to Safety Bill. Introduced by Greens Senator Nick McKim, the legislation was an opportunity to end the cruel treatment that's been meted out for nearly 10 years to people illegally trying to enter Australia by boat. The Human Rights Law Centre made a submission in support of the bill and its senior lawyer, Scott Cosgrove, told Don Wiseman what the bill could have achieved. The aim of the bill was to offer to refugees and people seeking asylum who are still trapped in Nauru and Papua New Guinea under Australia's offshore detention policy, the option now to come to Australia after nine years um, of horrific treatment under that policy. As you and many of your listeners would know, in around 2013 and 2014, the Australian government forcibly transferred several thousand people seeking asylum to those two countries where they were held in detention. 150 of them are still there now. And in that decade, 14 people subject to the policy have lost their lives. Many of those were due to treatable illnesses and those are deaths that could have been prevented if the government had transferred to pe- people to Australia for urgent medical care. This bill would have offered an opportunity to, to end that decade of inhuman treatment. All right. Well, the, the Human Rights Law Centre, you had the option to put in a submission. What did you say? Well, the Senate committee looking at the bill opened up for submissions for two weeks. It had a very short turnaround time and it received um, submissions from the UN Refugee Agency, Amnesty International, lawyers, doctors, many others. And we at the Human Rights Law Centre put in a submission as well. And our submission really points to the absolute dysfunction of the pre-existing and current processes for transfers to Australia and the ongoing impact of family separation caused by the offshore detention policy. So the current Labor government had indicated when in opposition and during its campaign that it was going to do something about these offshore detention centres. Has it reneged? Well, the Albanese government in opposition supported previous legislation of this kind. And that was in the form of the Medivac legislation that was in place in 2019 and which required the minister in Australia to consider the uh, information provided by doctors in relation to requests for transfer to Australia for medical reasons. The legislation that was voted down this week is of a similar kind. It responds to the crushing impact of offshore detention on people's mental and physical health. Before the election, the Albanese government was campaigning on a platform of improving those processes for transfer to Australia. They also undertook to introduce stronger oversight and scrutiny of the conditions, including healthcare services in offshore detention. But that hasn't happened. They are coming up on a year since the government came to office. That is clearly long enough. The people who are still subject to this policy have had almost a decade of their lives taken away from them. 150 of them are still there. And the government has even said publicly that it intends to have no one held in offshore detention by the end of this year. This bill would have been an opportunity for the government to evacuate those refugees and, and make good on that intention to bring this chapter to an end. So why do you think this legislation has been tossed out? Well, it's hard to look past the toxic politics relating to this issue 
in Australia, which has really loomed large over the last two decades. The bill was ultimately defeated because it was opposed by the government and it was also opposed by the coalition opposition. Ultimately, uh, I think it comes down to a matter of courage and political will. There is very little reason in policy that can justify what is continuing to happen in those two places. People were sent offshore originally in the name of processing, processing of their refugee claims. That's something that took place many, many years ago. In 2016, the Australian government agreed a resettlement arrangement with the United States. And as you know, more recently, a resettlement arrangement with the government of New Zealand. Those two things have provided some opportunity for hundreds of the people affected to get on with their lives in safety, but not for everyone. And there's still not a pathway for everyone. And in that context, it's simply a lack of moral courage and a reflection of the toxic politics on this issue that the major parties uh, have opposed this opportunity to uh, bring this horrific chapter to an end. What's the next move for the Human Rights Law Centre on this matter? Well, we're continuing to work with a large number of people who've been brought to Australia under the previous arrangements, and they have finally some access to a decent level of healthcare that they were denied for so long, and they're going about bringing about being able to get on with their lives. But as for the people who are still offshore, we hope that working with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the government of New Zealand, more and more people will be able to resettle in New Zealand from Nauru and PNG. But ultimately, that is not going to provide a solution for everyone. So we urge the government of Australia to take responsibility for this, take responsibility for something that all along has been Australia's responsibility and make good on its public intention to bring everybody off these two places of detention by the end of this year. Hundreds and thousands gathered at the Manukau Sports Bowl for the Auckland Secondary School's Maori and Pacific Islands Cultural Festival, or Polyfest, which is the largest Pacific dance event in the world. It's the first time the festival has been held in full and open to the public since 2018, after years of disruptions and cancellations. ANZ Pacific's Susana Suisuiki was in attendance and has the story. For 48 years, the most recognised Auckland four-day event, Polyfest, has showcased traditional Pacific music, dance, costumes and speech competitions. It's a celebration of New Zealand's diverse cultures and youth performances. And the young attendees clearly embrace it all. Emma Mataya from Papatoitoi High School says no matter where you're from, Polyfest is for everyone. We would like to encourage everyone to, um, no matter what culture you are, it doesn't matter to come and embrace other people's culture. You know, we're all one. Luciane Patterson and Margaret Troon from Auckland Girls Grammar School say with Samoan and Tongan groups dominating the Pacifica space in New Zealand, it's crucial to have other Pacific groups present too. I think it's really important to me, especially with there not being like a Fijian stage, which is understandable because Fijians aren't Polynesian, they're Melanesian. But I think it's important that we still are able to showcase our cultures here. 
For students who travelled from Hamilton, say the event is an opportunity for them to strengthen their cultural identity. For me, it's more of a way to show appreciation for my culture. For most, I guess, it's, most people are like to fuck up to show that they're you know, from a certain place because they might think that others are, or they're not really well known. But um, I think being able to show where we are from, um, for example, wearing a Taovala just shows how much we appreciate our culture and how proud we are to be who we are. It's a draw card for politicians and local community leaders, even if they need a little encouragement to join in the spirit of the event. One, two, three. Shoo! How's that? <laughs> Holly Fest is also on tomorrow, while the Māori stage will run from April 3rd to 5th, giving participants time to recover from February's Te Matatini Kapahaka competition. That's specific waves for today. We can be follow next week more.